Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus began teaching in parables while teaching in front of the open public. Since the basic truth of who he was had been rejected by the open public, he's now keeping further revealed truth exclusive to his followers only. So while in the midst of a huge crowd one day, Jesus began teaching, but in a parable. And he gave four parables to the crowds back to back and then left, leaving people standing around either scratching their heads or pretending they understood. But then later, after Jesus' followers were alone with him, they asked him why he was teaching in parables to begin with. And he told them, he said, this nation's heart is waxed gross, so that they are able to hear but choose not to hear. They're able to see, but they keep their eyes tightly closed. They're capable of understanding and comprehending, but they won't. So this is why I now teach to them in parables. He who hasn't closed off his heart will hear and understand it. Now, folks, you know that explanation had to make Jesus' disciples a little nervous because they didn't understand the parables. Can you imagine standing there asking Jesus why he's teaching in parables to hear him say, well, I'm doing it so that only you guys will get it. Because everybody else has eyes, ears, and hearts that are tightly closed. But blessed are you guys, because you can see, because you can hear. And your heart isn't wax gross. So you guys get it. <clears throat> um, Lord, could you maybe explain to us the first parable? What? You don't get it? How can you understand anything from here on out if you don't understand this? So then Jesus explained the first parable in detail. He defined each variable, each symbolic term, and he mapped it all out. Then they asked him to explain the second parable. So he did. He explained it. He defined each symbolic term and mapped it all out. So then with those two explanations as sort of a key, a template, they were able to understand the other two parables that he gave to the crowds. But just to make sure, Jesus gave his disciples three more parables to see if they got it. When he was finished, he asked them, Do you understand all these things? They said, Yes, Lord. And that's where we left off last time. Now, this next reported event begins a series of events that get pretty exciting, folks. This would make for great movie-making if somebody would have the guts to do it. This report is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 17, Mark in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and Luke in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. They say that when Jesus saw the great throngs of people around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So he and his disciples got into a boat. But before they put out to sea, there were two short little things that happened that only Matthew recorded. He reports that before that they actually got into the boat, a scribe came up and said to him, Master, I will accompany you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, Well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have lodging places, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, hey, you want to follow me and accompany me wherever I go? That's great. But I don't have any lodging arrangements. I mean, sometimes people invite us in. We have a place to sleep. Sometimes we don't. So there's no guarantees here. We might have to sleep in a barn. Interesting, after that little pre-advisory warning, we don't hear any more. Matthew, the detailed stenographer, who always recorded every single word of every little conversation, doesn't have anything recorded from this scribe after that. And we don't know if he backed out or if he continued to come aboard, but just silently took a gulp and didn't say anything. We don't know. But then continuing on in Matthew's report, it says, Then another of the disciples said to him, Lord, before we leave, let me go first and bury my father. 
But Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there's a theory about this verse that presumes that what the disciple meant was that his father was at the point of dying, and he wanted to look after him until he died, to be with him in his final hours. And from that view, the assumption is that Jesus' response was basically saying, your father's not saved, he's dead already, let the spiritually dead bury themselves. The Amplified Version even has it translated that way with brackets, so you'll know that it's not a literal interpretation, but a suggested view. I don't happen to agree with that view at all, for a couple of reasons. This is one of Jesus' disciples who's seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles and heal all kinds of people. So why wouldn't he have invited Jesus to come heal his father if he had been sick and was dying? So his father isn't at the point of death or dying. He's already dead. And it happened suddenly. And second of all, isn't it an imposition to hold up Jesus and all the other disciples to ask them to wait until your father has died? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to just bow out if that's what you wanted to do? See, that theory, once scrutinized a little bit, doesn't make any rational sense, and especially since that's not what the text says. The disciple asked him, Lord, before we leave, let me first go and bury my father. So his father is already dead, and he just wants to get him in the ground before they take off, you know. That's what was written, so that's what it means. But Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So what does that mean? Let the dead bury their own dead. What he's talking about here, folks, are the people who are doing the burying. In other words, let the outside world, the spiritually dead, bury their own trash. That's basically the feel you get from this. The shell that your father once housed no longer belongs to your father. Because he's not really dead. He's alive and well, just not on the earth. But the old shell that he once occupied no longer belongs to him. It now belongs to the earth and to the people who were left behind who now have to do something with it so that it doesn't stink up the place. He's saying, let the unbelieving world deal with your father's abandoned shell. not important to us because we know he's not really dead. Now, folks, don't think Jesus is telling you that having funerals or going to funerals is wrong or a sin. That's not what he's saying. But like a lot of things, they are man-made rituals that can focus on the wrong side of things. All of us tend to place more importance on what we see right in front of us rather than what's real. The world considers death to be the end. But from the biblical standpoint, it's the beginning. But to the world, it's the end. So they mark the end of a life with a memorial so people can be comforted, say their goodbyes, and get some closure. And there's nothing wrong with that. And yet... If you're a Christian, there's no such thing as death. It's only a transition. It's only a doorway. So why in the world would you want any closure? What did Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you treasured the one who passed on, and they're in heaven, focus on that. Because somebody you know is actually there. That's exciting. Why would you want closure? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But if your treasure is in that coffin, then no wonder you want closure. I'd want closure too. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let them go through their little ritual. You and I both know he's not really dead. And after he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So he and his disciples got into the boat and they put out to sea. And this is where Matthew's report is back on track with Mark and Luke's. 
Mark reports that there were other boats with them on this journey. And Luke reports that as they were sailing, Jesus fell off to sleep. Mark reports that he was sleeping in the stern of the boat on a cushion. But then, suddenly, from out of nowhere, a violent storm arose on the sea that was covering the boat with waves. Mark's report said it was a furious storm with winds of hurricane proportions. And he said the waves kept beating the boat so that it was becoming filled. Luke reports a very strange characteristic about this storm. He said what started it was a whirlwind, what you and I might call a tornado. But he said it was revolving from below upwards, which is backwards, folks. Twisters begin up in the sky and then revolve downwards, unless you're talking about something smaller. I mean, what meteorologists might call gusnados. They can start below because it's a push from above, but then it swirls once it hits the ground. And Luke does say that this whirlwind forming from below did sweep down onto the lake. The point is, from all three reporters, this is seriously devastating stuff. I mean, it's, it's a scary storm, and it came from out of nowhere. It seems to form around them. And Luke reports the boat was filled with water, and they were in great danger. But Jesus is still sleeping in the stern of the boat, sleeping on a cushion, and this storm is serious enough to freak out these professional seafarers. I mean, this was old hat for them, folks. They've been through storms at sea before, but nothing like this. Luke, the investigative reporter, and Matthew, the former public's official, both record that they woke Jesus up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Lord, rescue and preserve us. We're perishing. Save us. But Mark, Peter's secretary, so this is actually Peter's account, Peter records them saying, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? I love that. And, and this is just one example of why a lot of people can identify with Peter, because he's a lot like us in our own inexperience and immaturity. Everyone else, they ran to Jesus to wake him up to save them from the storm. But Peter's attitude is a little different. This storm arises, and Peter knows what Jesus is capable of. But the storm is about to kill them, and he looks over at Jesus, and Jesus is asleep. So he gets a little frustrated. Jesus is dropping the ball on this one. And a lot of us in our own immaturity will come to the same conclusion about a lot of things in our own life. I mean, storms hit us too, folks. But Jesus sleeping during this devastating storm can be interpreted in three ways depending on your maturity. The mature and logical interpretation is to realize that Jesus is so powerful and so infinitely wise that this storm and all its fury doesn't even concern him. It concerns him so little that it doesn't even wake him up. So if he's not worried about it, you shouldn't be worried about it either. But that's not the way everyone in the boat interpreted his sleeping. The second interpretation was the one that Matthew and Luke recorded. They interpreted Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't know what was going on. You know, they were confident in his power. That's why they ran to him and yelled, Master, Master, we're perishing. Lord, rescue, preserve us, save us. We're perishing. So they were confident in his power. But they assumed that his sleeping was evidence of ignorance of the situation at hand. You know, wake him up. Jesus doesn't know about this storm which is absurd because, of course, he knows about it. But Peter's interpretation of Jesus' sleep is one that a lot of us might have. On one level, it shows more maturity than the others, but on another level, it shows less. 
Unlike everybody else, Peter doesn't interpret Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't know what was going on. He interpreted Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't care. So when the storms are about to kill them, and Peter looks over at Jesus and finds him asleep, he says, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? But Jesus wakes up, and notice his reaction. This is great. This is, this is, this is so cool. In the midst of the storm, it's still beating and crashing about the waves against the boat. Throwing water inside the boat, the hurricane winds are ripping through. Notice Jesus' reaction in the midst of all this chaos. He says, why are you afraid? Of course, you know, how do you answer that, you know? And he said, you have little faith. Then Jesus stands up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be silent. And the wind immediately ceased. And there was a great calm and then he turned to his disciples and said where is your faith how is it that you have no trust and no confidence in me and they were seized with alarm and profound reverent dread and they marveled saying to each other he commands even the winds and the sea and they obey him now folks there's a theory about this storm, that's just a theory, but it's a theory that I happen to agree with, and it suggests that this storm may have been demonically induced. And it's just a theory, but the reasons for this theory is because the storm was sudden, it didn't build, it didn't grow, it came out of nowhere. Its severity scared the professional seafarers who had weathered all kinds of storms in their career, but they didn't know what to do here. They were scared for their very lives. They thought they were going to die. And all accounts say that Jesus rebuked the winds as though they were behaving in a way that wasn't natural. In Mark's account, it uses the exact same word that Jesus used against the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Shut up. Be muzzled. Be gagged. And Luke's account, aided with West's word studies, it says he rebuked and censored the winds. And all of that kind of makes you scratch your head and say, what's going on here? But then it all makes sense when we discover what's waiting for Jesus on the other side of the lake. And this event is recorded by Matthew in chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, Mark in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and Luke in chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. They report that when he arrived at the other side of the lake in the country of the Gadarenes, as soon as he got out of the boat... When Jesus stepped out on land, Matthew reports that two men under the control of demons went to meet him, coming out of the tombs so fierce and savage that no one was able to pass that way. And they shrieked and screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of God? Had you come to torment us before the appointed time? The appointed time. Interesting that they are aware that their days are numbered. Interesting. Now, of these two men, Mark and Luke home in on one of them and give us a little background information. Some people think that Matthew's record, because it says two men possessed, while Mark and Luke only mention one, that Matthew's account is either a different scenario or a mistake. But neither of those theories are accurate. This is the same event without contradictions. There were two men possessed, just as Matthew reported. But one of them was obviously a tag-along, which is why Mark and Luke primarily focus on the one guy and give us some background. Luke reports that for a long time he had worn no clothes. He was naked. 
And he didn't live in a house or a home, but in tombs. Mark reports that this man continually lived among the tombs, and no one, no one could subdue him anymore. At one time, they had been able to do so, but not anymore. Not even with chains. For he had been bound often with shackles for the feet and handcuffs, but the handcuffs and the chains he would wrench apart, and the shackles broke him into pieces. And no one had strength enough to restrain him or tame him. So this guy is running wild night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always heard at night shrieking and screaming and beating and bruising himself and cutting himself with stones. Folks, so far in the gospel narrative, we have not encountered anything like this before. You kind of sense the internal torment and the conflict of wills going on inside this guy. The shrieking and the screaming and the self-mutilation of his body gives you the impression that the original owner of that body, who's still in there, is attempting to fight what's taking him over. We don't know if he's hurting his own body in an attempt to hurt the demons and drive them out, or if it's the demons hurting his body in an attempt to subdue his will. And we don't know if this guy's screams all throughout the night are from the demons responding in anger to the will of the original owner of the body, or the original owner screaming in response to the terror that it's dealing with. But this is weird. Mark reports that when this guy saw Jesus from a distance... He ran and fell on his knees before him in homage. Did the demons do that? It doesn't say, but I don't think so. It's possible that the demons saw him from an even further distance and caused the storm on the lake in an effort to prevent him from landing to begin with. But when the man who possessed saw him, he ran up to him and fell down on his knees. But the voices of the demons inside him cried out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And then he said, I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Folks, what was known as a Roman legion was usually around five to 6,000 soldiers. There were around 6,000 demons crammed into this one guy. No wonder he had superhuman strength. No wonder he couldn't be bound. And they kept begging Jesus not to send them out of that region or into the abyss, the bottomless pit. But while all this was going on, at some distance there was a herd of hogs, around 2,000 of them, grazing on a hillside. And the demons begged to Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that drove of hogs. And Jesus said, be gone. And immediately they came out of the man entered into the hogs, and the whole drove rushed down the steep bank into the sea and died in the water. Now, it's from this that many assume... Now, hold on a minute. I just, I'm imagining that in my head, and every time I do, I just... What a movie! If somebody would put that on film and do it right, you know? Now, it's from this that many assume there were 2,000 demons because they possessed 2,000 hogs. But nowhere does it say that each demon possessed only one hog. It said they, the legion, which is around 6,000, they came out of the man and possessed the 2,000 hogs, and they ran headlong down over the cliff and into the water and died. Well, the herdsmen saw this happen, and they ran away into the town and reported everything, including what had happened to the men under the power of demons. So the people of the whole town came out to see what had occurred, 
And when they got there, they looked intently at the man who had been possessed with 6,000 demons, just sitting there at Jesus' feet with clothes on, sitting there calmly and in his right mind. And this freaked them out. They all became seized with alarm and struck with fear. And others who were there as eyewitnesses told them of what had happened to the hogs. And this scared the whole town so much that they begged Jesus to leave their locality. So he did. Interesting, he didn't offer any argument against them. He just left. Now, a couple of things about this whole scenario here. It's interesting that the demons couldn't enter into the hogs without Jesus' permission first. If they wanted to flee from Jesus, why didn't they just escape, enter into the hogs themselves, you know? But demons can't possess any creature without permission first. They can't possess the Christian because it has the Holy Spirit locking the demons out. And it can't possess a person who isn't saved without that person's permission. And there's all kinds of ways that they can get permission. It's subtle and deceptive. It's what are known as entries. Several different subtle ways demons can get permission in today's culture. Anything involving Ouija boards, tarot cards, astrology. I mean, all that stuff invites demonic oppression. And depending on the will of the individual, even possession. Now, the sad truth is, even Christians can be oppressed. They cannot be possessed, but they can be oppressed. Which is why it's dangerous, even for Christians, to screw around with astrology and Ouija boards and tarot cards. All these things invite demonic oppression, and depending on the will of the individual, even possession. That's one of the dangers of mind-altering drugs, because they alter the mind into a state of surrendered will. Hypnosis is dangerous, because any psychologist will tell you it won't work unless the patient surrenders their will over to the one hypnotizing. But only man has free will. Notice that animals don't, because unlike the human race... The animals have never sinned. God gave them one command, be fruitful and multiply, and they've been obeying that command ever since. You won't find the culture of animals changing like ours does from generation to generation. The society of any species, I mean just, you know, the sparrows, whatever. The society of any species of animal is the same today as it was thousands of years ago. Romans chapter 8 even tells us that they were subjected to the curse, not by any fault on its own, but by God's will. And yet, with the hope that one day it will be removed and the sons of God will be revealed. Now, isn't that interesting? Unlike man, the animal kingdom is subject to God's will. So because of that, demons can't possess animals without God's permission. Because animals don't have the free will to surrender to demons like we do. Isn't that something? Another thing weird in all of this is that Jesus would grant these demons their request and allow them to enter the hogs. Nobody knows why, but we suspect it's to prove to the readers of the Bible throughout history that demons are not an old culture's attempt to explain psychiatric problems. The man was not schizophrenic. He was possessed with 6,000 demons. If he had just been insane, then what drove the 2,000 hogs into the sea? But this whole event freaked out the town so much that they asked Jesus to leave, so he did. And that's interesting. 6,000 demons couldn't force Jesus back into that boat. But the faithlessness 
of a scared little town could. Free will in force, folks. And when Jesus had stepped back into the boat, the man who had been controlled by the unclean spirits kept begging him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused to permit him, but said to him, Go home to your own family, and go home to your friends. Bring back to them the news of how much the Lord has done for you. So the man departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now what happens next is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. Mark in chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and Luke in chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. It says, when Jesus had recrossed in the boat to the other side, a great throng gathered about him, and he was at the lake shore. The crowd received and welcomed him gladly, for they were all waiting and looking for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who had for a long time been a director of the synagogue. And falling at the feet of Jesus, he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. Luke points out that this little girl was about 12 years old. So Jesus got up and went with him, with his disciples, and a great crowd kept following him and pressed him from all sides. And on the way, there was a woman who had suffered from a flow of blood for 12 years. And she had spent all of her living on physicians and could not be healed by anyone. She had endured much suffering under the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but instead grew worse. But she had heard of the reports concerning Jesus and she kept saying, If only I touch his garments, shall be restored and turned to health. So she came up behind him in the throng and touched the hem of his garment and you can get into a whole study on the hem of a garment. It symbolized the leadership or authority. But anyway, she touched the hem of his garment and immediately her flow of blood ceased. It was dried up at the source and suddenly she felt in her body that she was healed and her distressing ailment was gone. And Jesus, recognizing in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, he turned around immediately into the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples kept saying to him, You see the crowd pressing hard around you from all sides, and you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Well, someone did touch me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. Was Jesus ignorant of who touched her, folks? Of course not. He knows who touched him. He's drawing her out. He knew this would happen before it happened. It's kind of funny how Jesus spoke of this. Well, I felt healing power come out of me, you know. Like it was just sitting there, and it oozed out of him. No, Jesus healed her, and he knows who it was. But this is to draw her out into the open. Because of where they are, it doesn't say, but because of where they are, this is probably a Gentile woman. Which is why she's timid in all of this. Another Gentile woman who is unnamed in the scripture. We don't know her name. Isn't that interesting? And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came up trembling, fell down before him. And she declared in the presence of all the people for what reason she had touched him and how she had been instantly cured. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has restored you to health. Go in peace and be continually healed and freed from your disease. But while he was still speaking, a man from the house of the director of the synagogue came and said to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Do not weary and trouble the teacher any further. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not be seized with alarm or struck with fear. Simply believe in me, and she shall be made well. And when he came to the house, 
He permitted no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. And all were crying for her. And Jesus saw the flute players and the crowd making an uproar. But he said to them, Go away and stop crying, for she is not dead. But they laughed him to scorn, knowing full well that she was dead. But Jesus put them all out. And taking the child's father and mother and those who were with him, he went into where the little girl was lying, and gripping her firmly by the hand, he said to her, Little lamb, I say to you, arise. And instantly the girl got up and started walking around, for she was twelve years old, and they were utterly astonished and overcome with amazement. And Jesus directed that she should be given something to eat. And her parents were amazed, but Jesus charged them all to tell no one what had occurred. But in spite of that, the news about this spread throughout all that district. Something neat about this whole account, remember the number 12 mystically throughout the Bible symbolized the kingdom, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 kingdom parables, and so on. Well, this is a little girl, the daughter of a Jewish synagogue director who is 12 years old. On the way to the house, Jesus ran into a Gentile woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. This mystically points to the sovereignty of God outside time and space. Everything about Jesus' mission was pre-arranged and planned out long before he came. The Gentile woman with the issue of blood wasn't in any way relevant to what was wrong with the 12-year-old girl. But outside time, isn't it interesting that the little girl that Jesus is on his way to heal, she was born the same year that the Gentile woman's issue of blood began. All of this was prearranged. Jesus was on his way to raise a 12-year-old Jewish daughter. But on the way, he restored a Gentile woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And then afterwards, he continued on his way to the Jewish daughter's house to restore her. And that's kind of neat because the same thing is happening right now, folks. Jesus came to the planet Earth to set up a Jewish kingdom. But on his way, he restored the health of the Gentiles. But he's still on his way to restore Israel. Isn't that neat? Now, the next two events reported are only recorded by Matthew. And this is in chapter 9, verses 27 to 34. It says, Jesus passed on from there, and two blind men followed him, shouting loudly, Have pity and mercy on his son of David. When he reached the house and went in, the blind man came in with him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith in me, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus earnestly and sternly charged them, saying, See that you let no one know about this. But they went off and blazed and spread his fame abroad throughout that entire district. You know? <laughs> kind of makes you wonder if Jesus wasn't using reverse psychology, because every time he tells them not to say anything, they run off and blaze the news to everybody. And while they were going away, behold, a dumb man, someone who was mute, couldn't speak, who was under the power of a demon, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the dumb man spoke. And the crowds were stunned with bewildered wonder, saying, Never before has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He only drives out demons with the help of the prince of demons. Interesting that the Pharisees are still hanging on to that same old lie that Jesus has already refuted. I mean, he's dealt with this before. I mean, just every time it happens. 
Now, the next reported event involves Jesus' second trip back to his home turf, Nazareth. And things haven't improved one bit in Nazareth, folks. Well, I guess that depends on how you look at it. At least they don't try to push him off a cliff this time. This is reported in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 58, and Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. It says, Jesus came to his own country and hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed with him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who listened to him were utterly astonished, saying, Where did this man acquire all of this? And from where does he get his miraculous power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And do not all of his sisters live here among us? Where then did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. They were repelled and disapproved of him. And it hindered them from acknowledging his authority. And it caused them to stumble. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many works of power there because of their unbelief. Mark reports, though, that he did lay his hands on a few sickly people and cured them. But overall, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. That's something when you consider Jesus himself being really impressed with something. And this is one of them. He was impressed and marveled at their unbelief. I mean, he, he just couldn't believe. It's like, this is man. So he went about among the surrounding villages and continued teaching. Now, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Jesus called together the twelve apostles and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to announce and preach the kingdom of God and to bring healing. And the reason why he did this is recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to chapter 10, verses 4. It says Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing all kinds of diseases and every weakness and infirmity. But when he saw the throngs of people, he was moved with pity and sympathy for them because they were bewildered like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to force out and thrust laborers into his harvest. So Jesus summons to him his twelve apostles and gave them power and authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to cure all kinds of diseases and all kinds of weaknesses and infirmities. And then verses 2 to 4 names them all again. Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, also known as Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who was the one who eventually betrayed Jesus. Now, according to Matthew 10, verses 5 to 9, Jesus sent out these twelve, charging them, saying, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and do not go into any town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons, and don't charge them anything, because freely without pay you have received, so freely without charge will you give. And take no gold or silver or even copper money. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report that Jesus said, Take nothing for your journey except a walking stick. No bread, 
no wallet for a collection bag, no money in your belts, and don't take an extra set of undergarments. Just what you have on and with the sandals on your feet. And into whatever town or village you go, inquire who in it is deserving and stay there at his house until you leave that vicinity. And as you go into the house, give your greetings and wish it well. Then if indeed that house is deserving, let come upon it your peace. But if it is not deserving, let your peace return to you. And whichever house or whichever town will not receive you or listen to your message, as you leave that house or leave that town, shake the dust of it from off your feet as a testimony against them. For truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that town. (laughs) Wow. He said this before, saying that it would be more endurable for Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason why is because Jesus said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the miracles that were performed in your town, they'd still be around to this day. Isn't that something? And then according to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 42, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wary and be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. Be on guard against men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and they will flog you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a witness to bear testimony before them and to the Gentile nations. But when they deliver you up, do not be anxious about what or how you are to speak. For what you are to say will be given you in that very hour and moment. For it is not you who are speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Folks, Jesus is now going beyond their immediate future. He's now telling them of what's coming even after he leaves the earth. He says, Brother will deliver up a brother to death, and the father his child, and children will take a stand against their parents, and will have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who perseveres and endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another town. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now he's getting into the distant future. So this isn't just to the twelve apostles, folks. He's getting into the next 2,000 years. He continues and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is sufficient for the disciple to be like his teacher and for the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they speak evil of those of his household? See, Jesus is saying, get used to the insults. Get used to the controversy. Get used to the insults, even from people who claim to be Christian. My own family called me insane, Jesus is saying. The Pharisees called me possessed. If they'll call me all of those things, the same thing's going to happen to you. And he says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is concealed that will not be revealed. Everything kept secret will become known. And what's he talking about there, folks? He's talking about the judgment again. He says, What I say to you in the dark, you tell in the light. And what you hear from me whispered in the ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. And do not be afraid of those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather be afraid of him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. In other words, don't be afraid of what anyone can do. Not even Satan and all of his forces. Because they can't destroy what I can destroy. 
In other words, don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid at all. But if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of me more than them. And Jesus says, are not two little sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's consent. And notice this, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, then, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying, I'm in total control, and I know everything. I know all the hairs of your head. And if I, you know, so if I know that, then I know everything. If I'm going to be paying that close attention to detail, such as the number of hairs on your head, if he knows that, he knows everything. And a single sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the Father's permission. So if he's in control of something that insignificant and that trivial, then he's in control of everything. And Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before men and confesses me, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven and confess that I am abiding in him. But whoever denies and disowns me before men... I will also deny and disown him before my Father who is in heaven. And once again, folks, don't confuse denial with ignorance. You can't deny something that you don't know. It's purposeful denial. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace upon the earth. What? Whoa, wait a minute. Getting into controversial territory here. Jesus says, don't think that I have come to bring peace upon the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to part asunder a man from his father, and a daughter from her mother, and a newly married wife from her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be they of his own household. Wow. This kind of rubs against the grain of the soft, hippie Jesus that we all hear about, folks. Jesus is meek, and he is humble, and he is patient, and he won't violate anyone's free will. But the truth of the matter is, the planet Earth is currently under an enemy occupation. And a war is being waged against the one who has already won the war, but has yet to take back what he purchased. And in spite of the harmonious singing and soft, gentle Christian cliches that we all hear, this is serious business. And Jesus is about to lay on us some tough words here, and it's not sugar-coated with any comforts, because he's talking to his apostles, not just, these aren't first graders. This isn't the crowds. And these aren't just the disciples. I mean, the disciples are followers of Christ. But the apostles, these were selected personally. And Jesus is about to lay on us some tough words here. But what he's fixing to say is just the way it is. It's not because of anything Jesus has done, but it's because of the present condition of the war that we're all engaged in, whether we like it or not. He says, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does he mean by not worthy of me? Because none of us are worthy. None of us. But what he's saying, in order for the battle to be waged successfully, all other things have to come last. If you love father and mother or son and daughter more than Jesus, Satan will use that. He will do it. And then Jesus says, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life on my account will find it. In other words, whoever tries to hold on to this illusion that we call life on the planet Earth, be it a career, goals, whatever, 
If you spend your life devoted to searching for all of that, you'll never find it. You'll never get it. And even if you do get it by some chance, you're going to lose it when you die. And then to make things worse, you'll lose the life you could have had after we get off this rock called the planet Earth. You'll lose rewards and positions in the kingdom. If you're not saved, you can't even enter the kingdom. I mean, you'll lose even more. But whoever loses his life on Jesus' account will find it in the kingdom. Life on earth is irrelevant. It's an illusion. It's temporary. And it's nothing but a tool of Satan to distract and confuse thorns and thistles. And folks, you know, this is a tough lesson to learn. All of us spend our entire lives trying to remember that. Because there's so many distractions. There are so many urgent things right in front of us, you know. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is in heaven, you're going to find that life because it's real, it's permanent, and much better than anything down here. If your treasure is here, chances are you won't get it to begin with. And when you do get it, it won't be what you wanted. And even if you do get it, and even if it is what you want, you'll lose it all when you die. Then Jesus says, talking to the apostles, He who receives and welcomes you, receives and welcomes me. And he who receives and welcomes me, receives and welcomes him who sent me. He who receives and welcomes a prophet, because he is a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. Wow! Folks, do you hear what he's saying? You think of the Old Testament prophets, you know, Elijah, Daniel, Isaiah. Think of their rewards. Jesus is telling you, if you welcome and receive a prophet because he is a prophet, that person shall receive a prophet's reward. I wonder if that includes people who believe the book of Daniel or believe the book of Isaiah. Just, I'm, I don't know, but I wonder. And he says, he who receives and welcomes a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, shall receive a righteous man's reward. He's talking about the distribution of rewards in the new kingdom, folks. I mean, wow. Jesus says, whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, surely I declare to you, he shall not lose his reward. See, that's one of the things we worry about is losing rewards that are waiting for us. We kind of worry about screwing things up. Not about losing our salvation, but about missing out on some rewards because of, you know, misbehavior or whatever. But here he's saying, whoever gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, surely I declare to you, he shall not lose his reward. Wow. <laughs> Folks, this is great. These are orders from the king to us, the children of the kingdom. That kingdom is real, it's coming, and all of us are going to be a part of it. This isn't talking about heaven or hell, this is talking about the coming kingdom. If you are saved, hell is not an issue. That's behind us. But how you receive these orders and carry them out will decide where you're placed in the coming kingdom and what rewards you will receive and what positions of authority that you'll have. And then according to Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, Mark chapter 6, verse 12, and Luke chapter 9, verse 6, when Jesus had finished his charge to his twelve disciples, they departed and went about from village to village, preaching the gospel, preaching that men should repent, and restoring the afflicted to health everywhere. And they drove out many unclean spirits and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Meanwhile, Jesus left to teach in their Galilean cities. And that's where we're going to leave it until next time, folks. Till then, we're out of here. Take care.